0: Thank you, and um, thank you very much, Andrew, and the other members of History and Policy for um, hosting us, and um, especially Alex, who's done an amazing job of organising our time here. So, um, I'm really delighted to be able to um, tell you a little bit about. Uh, a very um, Australian situation um, that you may be unfamiliar with, um, but I think which um, has pretty obvious connections to um, aspects of British history and to British history generally. Um, I was telling some colleagues that when I arrived um, at immigration, um, I was explaining to the immigration uh, the man who was on the immigration desk, what I was here for, and, I, and he wanted extra detail. So I gave some extra detail. And, and when he kind of understood what the, the conference was about, he said, oh, that's fantastic. He said, we really need more historical context for this government uh, in Britain. And I, I've, I've been to quite a lot of international conferences. I've never actually been greeted with that kind of enthusiastic welcome that, you know, thank God the historians are here. Um, <laughs> I actually have no wisdom to offer on your situation. I'm going to talk about a problem um, of ours in Australia. Um, So I'm going to talk about a research project that I've been involved with. Um, It's it's really just began in March, so it's in its fairly early stages in terms of the actual research, Um, but I think it provides some good examples of how Archival research, um, perhaps seemingly quite um, esoteric um, archival research and historical analysis um, are being used to inform both policy making and public culture and uh, decision making more generally. Um, So I'm going to just give a little bit of background for those of you who are not familiar um, with the um, treaty-making process that is currently underway in um, the state of Victoria, and then I'll um, speak more about the project. Um, So, in June of this year, the Advancing the Treaty Process with Aboriginal Victorians Bill uh, 2018 passed through the Upper House of the Victorian Parliament without amendment. Um, This is uh, the woman on the um, right here is Jill Gallagher, the Treaty Commissioner, um, being applauded after she spoke. Uh, The Aboriginal Affairs Minister noted at the time, uh, repeatedly, that this made Victoria the first state in Australia to commit to negotiating a treaty with its First Peoples. Many of you may be aware that um, Australia was the only, um, uh, it's alone amongst the former British settler colonies in that no treaties were signed with uh, any of the indigenous clans or nations at the time of colonisation and none have been negotiated since then. Over the past 20 years, in particular, many Aboriginal people and non-Aboriginal people have come to see a treaty not as the solution, I think, to the um, great disadvantage that Aboriginal people experience, but as um, perhaps a more stable starting point uh, from which that um, marginalisation and disadvantage can be addressed. As a result, in recent years, a number of treaty processes have been initiated. Uh, A treaty process was initiated in the state of South Australia, um, but the current government abandoned this process. um, That had been one of their election promises uh, when they came to um, power earlier this year. The Northern Territory (coughs) government has now initiated a treaty process um, with Indigenous people in that territory. Um, At the federal level, the government has ruled out um, the possibility of a treaty, but the leader of the opposition has promised that if elected, he will initiate a treaty process. So all of this is just to say that treaty is a politically very divisive question. It falls out pretty much along the lines that you would expect in terms of party politics. Um, But the treaty process, which is more advanced in Victoria than anywhere else, is therefore under a lot of scrutiny, both from those who would like to see it succeed and and those who are kind of hoping it fails. So as the title of this new Act suggests, um, the Advancing the Treaty Act is not in itself a treaty. It provides the legislative basis for the state to recognise an Aboriginal representative body. Um, The Aboriginal representative body itself will not negotiate the treaty, but it will work with the state in order to um, determine who is going to negotiate. So, Importantly, the Act does not establish this representative body, nor does it specify who the parties to the treaty will actually be. The form of the Aboriginal representative body is being determined by the Victorian Treaty Advancement Commission, of which Jill Gallagher is the commissioner, and that is made up of Victorian Aboriginal people. And this kind of distance that is being placed between the state (coughs) and the negotiating parties is is very deliberate. It's an attempt to um, create kind of uh, equal parties rather than appointing the state, appointing people who are then going to negotiate with it. So from the outset, and perhaps not surprisingly, the treaty process has, been, uh, has faced a number of challenges. Some of these have had to do with specific political um, issues. Uh, The opposition had promised to stop the treaty process if they were elected, so that created some uncertainty. They weren't elected. Um, At the other end of the political spectrum, the Greens party has made a concerted effort to Mm -hmm. amend the legislation to ensure that it more clearly asserted the sovereignty of clans as the basis for negotiation. And this was also unsuccessful. Um, But some of the other challenges that are faced um, by um, those committed to um, this particular treaty process are more to do with the um, historical impact of colonization. Um, So just to give one example, a key issue in establishing the representative body relates to the distinction between Aboriginal Victorians and traditional owners. The traditional owners are those who have historic rights and responsibilities to the lands which now make up Victoria. Aboriginal Victorians are any Aboriginal people who live in Victoria. As a result um, of the history of colonisation and successive government policies, many Aboriginal people who have lived in Victoria for years or for generations are not descendants of the traditional owners. Further, as a result of the widespread removal of Aboriginal children, substantial numbers of Aboriginal people living in Victoria are not able to identify the clan or clans from which they are descended. So there is a, a kind of burning question about how these people might be represented or included in the treaty process. And uh, imagine it's a little bit difficult to see, but this is the, um, the commission's proposal for the representative body. And It allows all Aboriginal people in Victoria to vote but only traditional owners to be representatives on the um, council so it's a kind of um, it's a kind of uh, attempt to and and there's also um, positions for elders um, who are not elected so it's it's an attempt to kind of engage with some of these complex questions but of course it's um, it's very controversial so All of this is um, to explain the context in which um, uh, a number of us have um, begun working on an Australian Research Council funded project called Indigenous Leaders, Lawful Relations from Encounter to Treaty. Um, This is a discovery indigenous, which means that it's led by indigenous scholars and aims to capacity build amongst uh, indigenous academics. Um, So the project is led by Professor Mark McMillan, who's a Wiradjuri man, um, and a legal scholar based at RMIT in Melbourne. And the other four investigators, um, including myself, are um, historians or primarily legal scholars at Deakin and University of Melbourne. And we also have appointed an Indigenous postdoctoral fellow and a number of research associates. So it's quite a big project. So a primary aim of the project is to reframe public understandings of treaty making as the conduct of lawful relations between (laughs) sovereign entities. And we argue that um, in order for lawful relations to be conducted, um, Indigenous and non-Indigenous jurisprudences, systems, and traditions of legal thought must come into relation. They must encounter one another meaningfully. Um, So, in other words, um, since colonisation we are claiming, um, there have been at least two systems of law and traditions of legal thought operating in what we now call Australia. Um, Both systems of law authorise the rights and responsibilities of people and give shape um, to their aspirations. Treaty making offers us a, a challenge and an opportunity to consider the question uh, more uh, in a more focused way. How do these systems of law relate to each other? And how can they be in constructive relation with each other? Um, so we're drawing here on the work of Indig- Indigenous legal scholars and others, um, both those within the academic community and traditional knowledge holders who've shown very clearly the central importance of law to Indigenous societies, um, which of course are diverse and, um, and multiple, um, but uh, it, the kind of central um, valuing of law and, and the, um, many of the central <laughs> values of that law are common. So this includes this uh, legal tradition uh, includes, but is not limited to the existence of laws relating to agreements between sovereign entities. Um, the Aboriginal peoples of Australia and the Pacific have a long tradition of agreement-making and the conduct of lawful relations. This tradition was in place before 1788 um, and has continued on. So by deciding to enter into a treaty or treaties with the traditional owners and Aboriginal people of Victoria, the state joins this tradition of treaty and agreement making. Um, So this is the sort of premise of um, of the project. Um, And I am a uh, historian, not a legal scholar. My background is as a religious historian working on the history of Aboriginal missions. Um, So um, you might be asking, and I'm sure plenty of people have, what is my role? What is it that I'm actually doing um, in this kind of thicket of um, dense legalese? Well, um, historically, Indigenous law has usually not been recognized as such um, by the legal system that was established by the British colonists. And, and I'm just a, a, at a common, um, kind of common sense level. If you ask most Australians about the existence of uh, Aboriginal law, they would um, probably draw a blank. <coughs> This lack of recognition doesn't mean that there isn't a tradition of Aboriginal law holding. So a key part of the project and the element for which I'm particularly responsible is the recovery of archival evidence of both Indigenous law holding and of times and places where Indigenous and Anglo-Australian law have met, whether constructively or otherwise. Um, So what does that mean? Well, on the one hand um, we are aiming to more fully describe the history of encounters between Aboriginal and Anglo-Australian law in the judicial system. Um, And this is largely pulling together work that has already been done into a a kind of more comprehensive narrative. So in criminal cases heard in the early colonial courts, for example, questions of indigenous law were regularly raised and a plurality of laws was recognized. It was also sometimes denied and there's there's some contradictions in the decisions of this period. So very famously Judge Willis um, who was a I think, eccentric man would be putting it politely. Um, He, uh, sitting uh, in Port Phillip in 1841, was meant to be trying uh, an Aboriginal man who was um, accused of murder. Um, Willis considered the question of whether, in the absence of a treaty, uh, he had jurisdiction in relation to Aboriginal people, and concluded that he probably didn't. Um, In fact, the case was thrown out um, before he had to really make a call on that. But throughout the 19th and 20th century, examples can (coughs) be found of magistrates and judges um, taking Aboriginal law, sometimes described as custom um, or even superstition, into account when deciding cases involving Aboriginal people. And this is a tradition that, um, this is a a narrative that can be traced from early cases like this until uh, the Mabo decision in 1992, when the High Court determined that the indigenous population had a pre-existing system of law, um, and that this system would remain in force um, under the new sovereign except when specifically modified or extinguished. So placing treaty in uh, making within this longer history of encounters between laws in the Australian courts is one aim of our project. But we want to look uh, more broadly at the ways in which uh, laws met or encountered one another. And just one quick example. Um, On the 24th of May, 1863, the Victorian governor, Sir Henry Barclay, hosted a public reception in Melbourne to celebrate the recent marriage of the Prince of Wales and also the Queen's birthday. A deputation from the Corrondirg Aboriginal Reserve, uh, Wurundjeri men, Tung men, uh, who lived there, decided to attend. Uh, they were led by Simon Wonga, the Narangita, or leader of the Woiwurrung-speaking clan, and brought gifts uh, for the Prince. Wonga addressed Sir Henry in Woiwurrung, although he was fluent in English, And some of the men, as you can see in uh, this um, drawing from the newspaper, seem to have worn ceremonial possum skin cloaks. All of these are signs of um, uh, serious um, lawful business being undertaken. For the colonial newspapers, this was a um, quaint event that provided evidence of Aboriginal loyalty to the British, British Crown. However, the deputation had a specific agenda. They were seeking from Barclay um, the permanent gazetting of the reserve where they lived. It was Woiwurrung country. They had settled there independently, and they were seeking um, permanent security. Um, This is just one example of many, many um, that I could provide of um, Aboriginal leaders conducting themselves in ways that fulfilled their lawful obligations as leaders, to maintain connections to their land, to seek security for their people. Um, in this case, the Woi was successful, and the land was gazetted as a permanent reserve. So um, I've tried briefly here to give a few examples that show how closer attention to the colonial archive might provide instructive examples of how Aboriginal law holders have interacted with the state and its representatives in ways that produced meetings or encounters of law. Our argument is that understanding treaty making as a continuation of this history of lawful relations is not only historically accurate, but also highly constructive in that it focuses attention on the quality and nature of a relationship that a treaty might form, rather than simply delineating the rights and interests of the parties um, who are coming to treaty. So just quickly, finally, um, some of the outcomes of the project. Um, Our um, our lead CI, with the support um, of the um, investigators, recently provided um, extensive formal legal advice to the Department of Premier and Cabinet uh, in relation to its jurisdiction um, in responsibility in relation to the treaty. we are developing a number of uh, university courses, which um, uh, in the in the law school at Melbourne, and also in the history unit that I teach, that. Um, uh provide this as a way of thinking through uh, the history of encounters between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people, the usual scholarly books and articles. Um, We are uh, producing uh, some articles um, and hopefully doing some radio interviews as the treaty process kind of gets underway. Um, And finally, we have in our budget funding for two Indigenous Creative Fellows. Um, And in the final year of the project, which will be hopefully when the treaty is being signed, um, we are going to um, uh, use these um, Creative Fellows to um, disseminate, I guess, Um, the findings of our project, the kind of stories, um, the history that we're trying to um, fill in the blanks uh, of um, in creative ways that hopefully go beyond the kind of usual audiences. Thanks.